Hey there, everybody. Dave Robinson here, welcoming you to another episode of Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We've got another great show for you today. We're going to continue our conversation with Professor Frederick K. Hilton, retired researcher and still active artist. Now, you can hear the first part of this interview on our episode of November 22nd, 2022. Today, the focus is on Fritz Hilton's seminal research on in vitro fertilization. Well, that, of course, led to a discussion of the recent Supreme Court decision to overturn the landmark Roe v. Wade ruling of 1973. And then following that discussion, we'll hear from Professor Scott Miller on what cosmic delights await us in the night sky during the month of December. Stay tuned! But first, my interview with Dr. Frederick Hilton, artist and scientist. And then at one point, you got involved with in vitro fertilization. That's correct. In 1960, I was a visiting investigator at the Jackson Laboratories in Bar Harbor, Maine. The Jackson Laboratory does two things. One, they are the source of inbred strains of mice. Oh, yeah, they make the knockout mice. They have hundreds of different strains Mm -hmm. of mice. If you're looking, say, at a mouse for diabetes, Mm -hmm. they have diabetic mice. If you want to test drugs on them or something, you can get the diabetic Mm. mice. And they are all identical twins. This was because the formation of the Jackson Lab was brought about by a gentleman who had shown that if you had brother-sister matings among mice, if you had 28 Mm. generations of brother-sister matings, the offspring of those mice would have identical genotypes. Yeah, they're just so inbred. Yeah. So you now had experimental animals yep. had essentially the same genes. Yeah. You could eliminate. And commercially, they raised these things, and they're used all over the world, plus the fact not only did they have this industry going, They also had a very prominent research laboratory. So for eight years, Mary and I spent our summers at the Jackson Laboratory. I worked with Wes Whitten. He was, at the time, working on in vitro fertilization in mice. You may recall that the first in vitro fertilization that was successful in humans was in 1978, Manchester, England. Leading up to that were a number of scientific experiments, all sorts of animals, even on humans. I worked with Wes just on media that was best If you harvested Mm -hmm. oocytes, eggs, let's Mm -hmm. say, from the ovary, what would you grow them in? When they were grown to, say, an eight-cell stage, if you froze them, 
could they be thawed yeah. <laughs> and, and still, used and still used. again? And the eggs that were obtained from many different strains of mice, frozen, and they were frozen, shipped to Cambridge, England, where they were put in hormonally prepared incubator mother mice, and to see if you could grow mice from concepti that had been frozen. Now, that happened after human in vitro fertilization. In 1978, Steptoe and Edwards produced the first in vitro fertilization living person, Louise Brown. Yeah, Louise. She developed from one egg that was harvested during the menstrual cycle. They were still working on methods of producing more mature eggs or oocytes in humans. But they hadn't been freezing them. They're always they had not been freezing fresh. Them yet. So the first American in vitro fertilized individual was three years after the British, and it was number fifteen in the world. Hmm. Today, there are millions and millions of in vitro individuals walking the earth. In 2012, there were over 5 million huh. in 2012. I wouldn't, have, I, I wouldn't have guessed that many. So hmm. I don't know what the time, the number is today, but it's even... Yeah, oh, it's huge it. then if it was 12. Yeah. Then. The U.S. produces probably a million yeah. Well, infertility in, in couples yeah. is a huge problem. So in 1984, the OBGYN department and the people studying human fertility and so forth were interested in doing this. And hmm. because I had been involved with some of this in mice, I was probably the most experienced lab oh, person here. The interesting thing was, because UofL was a state university, you were not allowed to do in vitro fertilization hmm. in our lab. Is that right? At, so we set up a laboratory in Norton's, Norton's I, Hospital. Just around the corner. Yep, right across the street. And huh. I was the person working in the lab, doing sperm counts, putting the <laughs> sperm with oocytes, looking at how many from patient A, if the clinicians had taken by laparoscopic techniques, eggs that by this time they had worked out how to treat the patient hormonally mm -hmm. so that they could get a half dozen yeah. embryos. Because normally, in the normal cycle, most women will ovulate only one egg. Mm -hmm. The rest, maybe a dozen or so, mature each month, but only one survives, the others become atritic and are lost. Remember, when a young lady is born, they're born with all of the primitive oocytes they will ever yeah, have. Yeah, that are stuck in meiosis somewhere. Yeah. So, we set up our in vitro fertilization program 
It was in a basement laboratory in Norton's. So let's see, were you doing more like basic research or was it like, here's this couple, they need help, and then right. here's this other couple, they need yeah. help? Yeah. It was, it was more patient-oriented rather patient-oriented. Mm -hmm. And we were not initially, after the first six or seven patients, uh, we were not successful. Huh. In those days, in the early part, the success ratio was between 1 and 2%. Hmm. Today, it's a little over 50%. Yeah. So... How about that? The clinicians stopped because we were not being it's successful. Getting frustrated. Um, and was that because of the controversy about IVF? Was that federally funded or was it privately funded? Is it, it the hospital? The hospital was yeah. funding it. Or, yeah. Yeah. So they needed some results. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a, a fairly expensive yeah, procedure. Well, you were doing that in the mid-80s. 80, 1984. Yeah. What did they do now that you weren't doing back then, do you, do you, was there some magical formula the, that they're the, doing now? The main thing is probably the hormonal preparation yeah. of the patient, okay. uh, the media and so forth used in the laboratory. Now they can get from early cell stages, they can take one cell and do the genetics on that cell. Mm -hmm. to see if there are any going to be it, any anomalies or not all of them, but if there are any inbred anomalies that are going to arise in that individual. Because in the embryo growth at 8 or 16 cell stages, just at the time of implantation, implantation, I, I don't know if we want to get how far we want to get <laughs> into this, but I think... This is a good time for me to emphasize that in the human being, in a normal cycle, the oocyte is ovulated from the ovary. It is fertilized in the upper end of the fallopian tube. Mm -hmm. It stays probably in the upper part of the fallopian tube for five days. Hmm. It will move rapidly into the site of implantation. The uterus lining the endometrium has been preparing for this. There's some variation on this, but by day seven, implantation begins. The individual does not know they're pregnant, mm -hmm. and we do not have any method of showing that they're pregnant. Is that, there's no biomarkers no, for that the first biomarker week. comes as the embryo implants mm -hmm. in the endometrium. It's sending cells yeah. called syncytiotrophoblast cells into the endometrium. And these cells produce human chorionic gonadotropin. And that's the mm, measure you can detect. of whether you're pregnant hmm. or not. It's interesting to note that I have done experimental work. Mice do the same thing, except instead of seven days, it takes about four and a half days for the conceptus to move to the uterus. During of... that period of time, if you subject the mother to cigarette smoke, exercise wheels, soft drinks, a lot of times the embryos will not implant. 
so that you have in mice, and we can tell in mice very interestingly, because when mice copulate and they're fertilized, they form a vaginal plug. So if you lift the mouse up and find a vaginal plug, you know it is pregnant. And you can do it so we know in certain strains within an hour or an hour and a half when that mouse has ovulated. Hmm. So my point is that for the better part of a week or more in humans, we have nothing that I know of. Now, whether there are more modern things, but at the present Hmm. time... I do not know of any way to tell that the individual is pregnant. Yeah, and you listed smoking, exercise, and soda pop might interfere with that movement of the fertilization. I would guess that in humans, as I say, it's tough because we can't know when a human has... So you don't know, and you may be jogging, swimming, maybe you're arguing, who knows? What does this? But there is time when you are pregnant that you don't know it, that you do things that the body naturally aborts. So, in humans, as we pointed out, it's very, very possible that all sorts of things may disrupt the ability of the embryo to implant. And you don't even know you're pregnant. With today's procedures, and even when we did it, we would try to induce the ovary to produce and have available full harvest maybe six or eight oocytes. Okay, I've been in, in interviews enough with patients to know that I don't think we want twins or triplets or something <laughs> like that. And here you are sitting with, let's just say, four embryos at the eight or cell stage. They also knew in those days that they were more successful if they put in a couple of Hmm. embryos. Two? Two to three. Two or three. But it also increased the fact that we would have twins or triplets, (laughs) which I might say many people who desperately wanted a child were thinking pretty hard if they thought they might have triplet. Even in those days, we knew about cryopreservation. Mm-hmm. So, put them in liquid nitrogen, and if the patient, if she was pregnant, but maybe two weeks later, she aborted for mm-hmm. some reason, mm-hmm. you could hormonally yeah. prepare her for another woman. Another try. I must say that in the old days, many of the embryos were discarded. Mm-hmm. Today, you face the problem, your in vitro fertilization. If you discard the embryos, are you going to be called a murderer? Yeah, it's a crack because in Kentucky, the definition of life is once an egg has been fertilized. Yeah. If a couple successfully has their child and they're happy, they say, because they have to pay every year to keep their other embryos frozen. I've heard the figure, (laughs) maybe it's $1,000 a year. Yeah, they might just say, well, why am I doing that? But are they murdering? Yeah. Interesting philosophical (laughs) question. It is. Yeah. And with now the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, it's probably going to come up. Oh, yes. If you, not you, in Kentucky, some other place. Yeah. You've heard a little bit of discussion related to in vitro fertilization. 
And as I say, we're talking about, you know, not a, a small number. I mean, you're talking about maybe a million individuals in the U.S. a year born by in vitro fertilization. So it's a, a, a very interesting... Because uh, the alternative would be, well, don't harvest six oocytes, only harvest two or three, but then... That's if tricky. If you harvest two or three, if you put in one, you still have and then, one or two. <laughs> or will it just encourage couples not to even try IVF? Will they just not be able to do it? As I say, I haven't been in on the interviews now, but I would assume if people were looking today and with some idea of the rules that are now in play in some states and others it's still in the final stages of what's really going to happen uh, and if they look and say well we have an eye about 50 percent rate of being successful but it, suppose we aren't successful and we have under our name three or four embryos and we've made the decision that we're going to stop trying. Okay, now do we pay whatever it's going to cost in perpetuity mm -hmm. long after we may be gone? Yeah, it's true. That person's, those parents oh, yes. are not going to be around yeah. forever. Yeah. What the, their kids are going to have to pay. <laughs> and then if they do thaw them out, who's liable for prosecution? Would it be the clinic, the doctor, or the parents? The mother that produced the egg or... Who's responsible for that? Who gets prosecuted? It poses some very uh, difficult decisions. Yeah. Yeah. I think until we really know more about what might bring about, uh, let's say, natural abortion, as I, we've talked, I think this is a very important point that we want to know about. I'm no longer uh, obviously involved. I'm really <laughs> not up to date on uh, certain things in yeah. this area, but knowing even what I do, it would seem to me that there certainly is natural abortion. Mm -hmm. And we must consider this in our formation of laws or mm -hmm. whatever is going to govern this sort of thing. Let's just say, okay, if you drink a Coca-Cola or Pepsi, or something like this during the time that you're pregnant, but you don't know it. Mm -hmm. And that institutes and brings about a natural abortion. Are you going to charge the mother mm -hmm. with uh, murder or something like that? I can't but, imagine. But theoretically, if you sort of read some of these things now, it brings this into play. Yeah. There are these two state laws that have been passed by the legislature, but now it's gone to state Supreme Court, and they're going right. to decide whether it's, I guess the question is whether it's constitutional for Kentucky to pass those laws. We'll have to wait and see, I guess. <laughs> and it's happened so quickly, you know, yeah. that decision yeah. oh, was just yeah. this summer. Oh, that was my question, because the original Roe versus Wade decision was back in the 70s. Yeah. And so... People were working under that paradigm for 50 years. Actually, when we were at work, you know, it was all legal. I can't really tell people, you but. about the state law or why we were blocked from doing it in the U of L. 
it was had something to do with the state school. Yeah, I didn't the realize state that supply. was. Yeah, and uh, that wasn't true in other states. It mm-hmm. may have been in some, but it wasn't true in all. And back then, parents who were going through IVF wouldn't be ashamed or embarrassed by it, but they might now. They might be embarrassed to say, I'm yeah, going through IVF. I don't even think, as I say, I sat in on interviews with individuals before and after, and I never heard some of these terms like, is this murder or anything? I, back in there? No. <laughs> it just didn't it come up, have, yeah. Yeah. Since Roe v. Wade was yeah, the woman was, gets to decide, then. Yeah. And you, you think if Roe v. Wade hadn't been there, if we had the <laughs> Supreme Court ruling we have now, maybe we wouldn't have IVF. It, it might, may not have. It might have been something done in other countries and not United States. Well, it is interesting, as I indicate, the first U.S. in vitro fertilization was the 15th in the world. Yeah. So you see that other countries were... We were behind. We were well into <laughs> this, yes. That was Dr. Frederick Hilton, who was a professor in the Department of Anatomy at the University of Louisville Medical School from 1958 until 1995. Thanks much, Fritz. And we'll continue this interview on another episode of Bench Talk the Week in Science. In that one, we'll discuss his career in art in more detail. But now, J. Scott Miller of Maysville Community and Technical College in Maysville, Kentucky. Here's what we can see in the night sky in December of 2022. The skies of winter provide both beauty and a challenge. It gets darker earlier in the evening, about six or so, and the cold, dry air makes the stars appear to shine that much brighter. I am heading out about seven-ish to find planets, but it's cold outside, so I put a coat on and also think layers. As I move away from the house, I swing my glance toward the general direction south. In the southern sky are a couple of bright points. Saturn would be the brightest point in the south-southwest, while the brighter Jupiter is in the south-southeast. The moon will add to the scene near month's end. On December 25th and 26th, it will pass south of Saturn. It will do the same for Jupiter December 28th and 29th. So if one isn't quite sure what are the stars and what are the planets, the moon can be a helpful guide. Speaking of the moon as a guide, it will be a very good guide the evening of December 7th. It will lie just west of Mars. Mars is getting ever brighter as we slowly catch up with it in our faster orbit, closing the distance between us and it. We will pass it on December 8th. It is now as bright, if not brighter, than the stars in the eastern part of the sky as darkness falls. The moon is that much brighter, giving you a starting point. But what may be fun to watch is what happens over the next few hours. If one wanders out... About hourly intervals starting around 7, one will see the moon creep up and pass over the planet Mars. By 10 p.m., they will appear side by side with Mars just below the moon. Staying outside now can be a treat as the moon will appear to swallow Mars, then unswallow it over the next hour. This is known as an occultation of Mars. These are rare and a pleasant treat for the unaided eye. Constellations are also plentiful. 
with some having shapes that make them noticeable, if not reminiscent, of what they represent. In the western sky is an asterism known as the Summer Triangle. Unlike constellations, which are the official divisions of the night sky, asterisms are simply collections of stars, usually bright ones, that catch our eye because they form a familiar shape. In the case of the Summer Triangle, we see three stars making what is nearly an isosceles triangle. Vega is the brightest, and it is closer to the western horizon, marking the northwestern base corner of the triangle. Deneb, a bit dimmer but still quite bright, marks the northeastern base corner. The southernmost of the three is Altair, marking the tip of the triangle where the two longer legs join from the base. If I keep looking higher up to nearly overhead, a pattern of four stars all about the same brightness catches my eye. This is the great square of Pegasus, another asterism. It marks the body of that flying horse. From the southwestern star and extending toward the southwest is a check mark of stars which mark the neck and head of Pegasus. From the northwestern star of the square are a pair of lines of stars marking the front legs. And from the northeastern star of the square is another pair of lines of stars marking the back legs. Or does it? That pair of lines of stars is actually the constellation Andromeda. She is a princess chained and sacrificed to a sea monster as punishment for her mother's bragging, specifically about her mother's beauty. As a constellation extending from Pegasus, it can be shaped like the letter V, extending through three pairs of ever-widening stars. This brings us to the eastern sky, where a bright and familiar pattern of stars can be seen rising. By 8 p.m., one might glimpse the three stars that form a straight line, marking the belt of Orion the Hunter. Orion is a popular figure because of the 88 constellations that break up the sky. It is one of the few that actually looks like its namesake. Made of bright stars to make the shoulders, waist, and knees of this celestial hunter. Later in the evening or later this winter and on into spring, Orion will be better placed in the sky. An annual astronomical event to watch for in December skies is the Geminated Meteor Shower. This shower is to winter what the Perseid Meteor Shower is to summer, a meteor shower that can be depended on for seeing shooting stars. This shower can produce close to 100 meteors an hour from a dark site, that is, no city lights, near its peak. This year, the actual peak is during daylight hours. So to see some of these, one need to be out in the pre-dawn hours of December 13th and December 14th. The moon will interfere a bit as it will be near third quarter phase, rising around 11 on the 13th and about an hour later on the 14th. This may cut down a bit on the number seen, even from a good dark site. December 21st is the date of the winter solstice, the astronomical first day of winter. If you watch the sun rise and set and mark the location along the eastern and western horizons of these rise and set points, you will find that the sun does not always rise due east and set due west. The sunrise point will range from somewhat northeast to southeast and back over a year. Likewise, the sunset point will range from somewhat northwest to southwest and back over a year. The maximum points away from due east and due west are the solstices. December 21st marks the date of the southernmost rise point and the southernmost set point as we observe the sun over the course of a year. The sun crosses the sky at its lowest angle above the southern horizon, casting long shadows, but more importantly, not being present above the horizon for long periods. So, with no direct sunlight overhead 
and a shorter time when the sun is above the horizon, cold weather is the result. We have winter. So as the year comes to an end, planets, a tempting meteor shower, and more than a few asterisms and constellations invite us out to brave the cold. This can really help take one's mind off the hecticness of the season as one simply enjoys the wonders of the night sky. That was Scott Miller of Maysville Community and Technical College. Thanks a lot, Scott. Happy holidays to both Fritz and Scott, and to all of you listeners to Bench Talk the Week in Science. This is Dave Robinson signing out from Bench Talk the Week in Science. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Thank you.